Uh, let's dive into the word of God today. We sang about what we believe, right? Uh, in that last chorus, the, the adjusted chorus at the end says, I believe in life eternal. Uh, today we're going to talk about, in part five of our series called Convictions, as we walk through our statement of faith, we're going to talk about what we believe about eternity. About eternity. Eternity is a big concept. It's one of those things that, that is kind of impossible to fully wrap our head around. Uh, it, it's hard to really comprehend what it means to be somewhere for an eternity. Uh, but the Bible teaches us that we are eternal beings, that we will live forever somewhere. Uh, and so we're going to talk today about what we believe about eternity. As we've been doing uh, throughout our series, we're going to start with these actual words from our statement of faith, and then we will dig in from there. It says this, it says, people were created to exist forever. We will either exist eternally with God through forgiveness and salvation, or exist eternally separated from God by sin. To be eternally separated from God is hell. To be eternally in union with him is eternal life. Heaven and hell are real places of eternal existence. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, as we wrestle today with questions of eternity, God, as we discuss some things that are tense, some things that are uncomfortable, some things that are tempting to not believe, uh, God, I pray that the truth of your word would speak. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower believers to grab hold of the truth of your word today. God, I pray that you would empower those who don't yet know Jesus to recognize the urgency of making him Lord of their lives. God, that you would draw them to Jesus even today, even online, even uh, through our message today. God, that you would draw those who don't know you to your son Jesus. God, for those of us who do know you, I pray that today you would increase in us a, a passion and urgency to tell others who Jesus is, to share our faith as we recognize how deeply important it truly is. We thank you for all these things you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. Of all the messages in this series, this is probably the one that would be most easy for me to say. Now we'll skip this one, right? This is the one that is the most uncomfortable to discuss and then for that reason, it's probably the one that's most important for us to discuss. What do we believe about eternity? What we'll do today, as we've been doing throughout most of this series, is we'll grab those phrases, those sentences, those statements in the statement of faith and, and discuss e each of them individually, and then we'll find some application together at the end. The statement of faith opens with this. It says, people were created to exist forever. Anytime I hear that word forever, I go back to childhood watching the Sandlot, and it's forever, forever. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I know I'm old, uh, so shout out to the Gen X in the room for getting my reference. Thank you for supporting me in that. Um, couple of you, wait, that's right, killing me smalls, exactly. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you have been deprived, so we'll pray for you. Um, so, uh, people were created to exist forever. 
That's a big word, right? Like, uh, we, we usually start using forever in the most ridiculous way possible. It's like a classic statement about a middle school dating couple. So-and-so and so-and-so in love forever, right? Like the number four in an EVA. Uh, spoiler alert, most of those did not last forever. Uh, <laughs> most of them did not last for February, right? Um, so <coughs> we, we, we abuse the word early on. But that forever is a true statement in this. You were created to live forever. Now, not necessarily here forever, not necessarily in the body you are in right now forever, but you were created to exist forever. We believe here at City Church that humans are three-part beings. We are made in God's image. God is three in one. Uh, and that we are three in one. We believe that you are a spirit that has a soul that is housed in a body. And, and the, the way that that is worded is very important. Nor, many times we think of our spirit as something we have. Well, I have a spirit. My spirit is eternal. But the reality is you don't really have a spirit. You are a spirit. We saw last week as we looked at how, what do we believe about people? We saw that we are created in the image of God. And God is spirit. He is eternal. And when he chose to make us, to reflect him out into the universe, he chose to make us in his image and make us spirit beings. And once we were given endowed with a spirit, we were guaranteed to exist from that point until forever. Again, hard to fathom, hard to fully wrap my brain around sometimes, yet it is scriptural from front to back, this concept of eternity, this concept that from the moment of conception, the moment when God places a spirit in a mother's womb, that that individual is going to live for eternity. So you are a spirit, that has a soul. The soul is your mind, will, and emotions. It's the way that we interact with one another. Our spirit is how we interact with God and connect with God. Our body is how we interact with the physical world around us, right? So we need all three parts to relate in different ways to different things. Um, but at our very core, at our very essence, it is our spirit that will last forever. That's why it's so important for us to feed our spirit. That's why it's so important for us to engage our spirit. Because it's that spirit that is going to go on to the next life. It is that spirit that is going to last forever. So you were designed, you were created to exist forever. Whether you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus, whether you love Jesus or you hate Jesus, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are going to live forever. You are going to exist forever. That's the first thing in our statement of faith. The next one is this. You will either exist eternally with God through forgiveness and salvation. Next week, we're going to talk about that second word there, salvation. So what do we believe about salvation? We'll unpack that starting next Sunday. But you're either going to exist eternally with God because you've received salvation through the forgiveness of your sins by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, or you will exist eternally separated from God by sin. Talked about this last week, talking about what do we believe about people, that sin separates us from God, creates this divide between us. And so as sinners, we are born separated from God. 
And it is only through receiving the redemption that Jesus provides that we can then be united to God again. So here's a question that comes up a lot when we talk about stuff like hell. One of the most common questions that Christians ask, I've asked this question myself, it's one that is very difficult to wrestle with, it's one that causes attention, is this. Well, what about a good person who never hears about Jesus, right? What, what about that good person in Africa or that good person in, in some jungle in the Amazon, right? What about this good person who, who just never had the chance to hear about Jesus? God would never send a good person to hell, would he? And if God were to send a good person to hell, then he's not really a good God, right? These are the questions that we often wrestle with. So let me give you some good news and some bad news. The good news is that you're absolutely right. God would never send a good person to hell. There's no way that hypothetical person we think of in in China or in Africa or in the Amazon or wherever it is on earth that they don't yet have access to the gospel where they haven't yet heard about Jesus. Man, a good person, a good man, a good woman, God would never send that person to hell. You're absolutely right. God doesn't send good people to here. That's to hell. That's the good news. The bad news is this. They don't exist. There is no person in Africa or South America or China or the United States who apart from Jesus Christ is good. We saw this last week. When we looked at what do we believe about people, we are all born sinners. We are all born separated from God. And so, of course, God would never send a good person to hell. He is a good God. He is a loving God. He is a just God. He is not out to send people to hell. That's not his purpose. That's not his goal. So here's what I felt like God shared with me to share with you this week. I want you to sign write this down. Hopefully we can grab a hold of this and incorporate this into our belief system. God isn't sending good people to hell. See, God is rescuing bad people into heaven. My God doesn't send good people to hell. My God rescues and invites and saves bad people into heaven like me. See, it's hard for us to think of ourselves as a bad person, right? And because we can think of good things that we've done. And we can point to people who don't know Jesus and point to good things that they've done. And yes, people do good things. Why? Because we're created in the image of God. Remember, that's where we start. We've got a divine reflection of him. And so we are capable of doing good. But because of sin at our very core, we're not good. Because of sin at our very core, we're enemies of God. And so the only way for a good person to make it into heaven is for that person to never be born. Because once we're here, we're not good. It's impossible for us to do that apart from receiving Jesus. You see, I'm a good person today not because of my goodness. I'm a good person today because Jesus' goodness has been applied to me. It's been credited to me. So when God looks at me one day face to face, he's going to welcome me into heaven because of Jesus' righteousness. Because Jesus has made me good in his eyes. And the same is true for you if you've received salvation and that's how you're going to get to heaven. But our God does not send good people to hell. 
Please understand that. There will not be one single good person ever sent to hell. It's not in him. It's not who he is. It's not his nature. It's not his character. It's not justice. But we also have to understand there is no one righteous, not even one. None of us will make it on our own goodness. Third statement here is to be eternally separated from God is hell. So yes, hell is a physical place. We'll actually see that on our fifth point today. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of fire and brimstone and sulfur. It's a place that you don't want to be, right? That, that is a reality. I don't know how many of you read like Dante's Inferno when you were in high school. Um, there's some accuracy there. There's some inaccuracy there as well. But, but most of the cultural pictures we have of hell is a place where the Satan is and there's burning and there's, there, there's misery. They're fairly accurate. Not completely accurate, but they're, they're pretty accurate. But ultimately, the worst thing about hell is not the fire. It's not the brimstone. It's not the, the suffering. It's not even the presence of Satan, who, by the way, he's not in hell right now, but he will be one day, but we'll get to that later on. The worst thing about hell is we're cut off from the presence of God. You see, the presence of God is what all blessing comes from. It's what all goodness comes from. It's what all joy comes from. In fact, the Bible teaches us that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And so all the stuff that, that brings us true joy in this life, all the stuff that, that is good, that is a blessing, man, it, it all comes down from the Father of lights. He's the author of all blessing. And when we're cut off from him, when we're cut off from his presence, when we're cut off from the stuff that he wants for us, that is hell. It is miserable. It is awful. And so to be eternally separated from God is hell. The Bible tells us this, Romans 6.23, it puts it this way, for the wages of sin is death, right? We did, saw it last week, that is not a physical death. Adam and Eve didn't die because they ate of the fruit on this earth. Their body didn't die, but their spirit actually died. And that spiritual death ultimately leads to separation from God and hell. Number four, to be eternally in union with God is eternal life. See, right now you have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit, is, the Bible says, is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. He's, he's a down payment, right? You haven't fully received everything you're going to receive one day in eternity with Jesus. There's still death here. There's still pain here. There's still suffering here. There's still sickness here. There's still disease here, right? Like, we, we've just gotten a taste. We've just gotten a down payment. We've just gotten kind of the appetizer in the presence of God. One day we'll be fully in his presence, and that's fully life. See, Jesus puts it this way. He says, the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, right? Have it to the full, that you could live a life that is full. So he's got a plan for us on this earth, but he's got something even greater for us in the next life. Romans 6.23, we already referenced it. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but it doesn't stop there says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? We probably first got our glimpse of understanding eternal life and everlasting life, most of us, from a verse, John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but should have everlasting life, right? This is God's plan. This is God's vision for us. This is his goal for us that we would get to spend eternity with him. Number five, heaven and hell are real places of eternal existence. We don't believe that heaven and hell are metaphorical, that they're there just to kind of teach us some good principles, that they're just an idea. We, we, we do believe that there are ideas in them, certainly, but ultimately they are actual real places, that there is a physical hell, and I know some people think it's like at the center of the earth, and I don't think that's probably the case. Um, there, you know, sometimes we think of heaven as like somewhere out in the universe, and I think it's probably separate from our universe, but I've never been there, so you can go with what you want, right? Um, we do believe that they're both real, right? And, and the reality is in our culture, it's a lot easier to talk about one than the other. Right? We, we have movies and books called Heaven is for Real because it's easy to celebrate heaven. We got movies, all dogs go to heaven. Shout out to the Gen X kids again, right? We're just going down memory lane today. Uh, like, like heaven is an easy concept in our culture. We don't spend as much time talking about hell. And I get it. I spend a lot more time talking about heaven than I do talking about hell. I think Jesus spent more time talking about heaven than he did talking about hell. So, so I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying we got to understand there is a reality to them both. They both truly exist. They are both real. They are both places where people will spend eternity. Paul says this in Romans 8.18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, heaven is beyond what you can imagine. The presence of God is beyond what you can think of, right? We associate it with streets of gold and mansions and banquets and, and all this. Good, you know, we, we associate it with the people who've gone there before us that we get to see one day. Hopefully, we associate it with being face-to-face -face with Jesus, with ultimately being with him. We have a lot of things we associate with heaven, but the Bible tells us that we can't even grasp how amazing this place truly is. It exists. It is for real. And if you've received Jesus, you're going to spend eternity there. Now, side note, and I don't want to get too caught up in this because this isn't like the crux of this message, but I'll just address this very, very quickly. There, there is a place called heaven that God is right now. The Bible tells us there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So the heaven that God is in right now is going to be destroyed. This earth is going to be destroyed. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And essentially, new heaven and new earth are both heaven. Uh, because there are places where the presence of God fully dwells. And so I believe theologically that as believers, we're going to actually spend most of eternity in the, on the new earth rather than in the new heaven. And it really doesn't matter. Right, uh, But just so you understand, we're going to be here, not there. God's going to create a new earth that's free from sin, free from sickness, free from disease, free from suffering, free from corruption. Right? He's going to create an earth that's his original design before Adam and Eve fell, except this time we're not going to mess it up. It's going to be amazing. Uh, so we'll spend it there, but even though it's the new earth, it's going to be heaven because Jesus is going to be here. We're going to have the fullness of God's presence on earth. We won't be separated from him. So yes, there is a physical heaven that's separate from physical earth, but one day the lines are kind of going to be blurred uh, because God will be in both places, fully accessible 
to his people. I spent a lot more time talking about heaven in general as a pastor for, for a number of reasons. Number one, because the majority of people that I'm talking to on this stage aren't going to go to hell. They're going to go to heaven. So you need to know what you're facing. You need to know what you're in for. You need to know what you're going to experience. Um, but today I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about hell. So we don't talk about it as much. And as I was preparing for this, this week, I felt a weight a heaviness, that this is stuff we don't understand, stuff that we dodge, that we duck, that we avoid, and it's important for us to wrestle with it. So let's look for a minute at hell. Revelation chapter 20, at the very end, as John sees this vision, this picture of the future, of what's going to happen at the end of times, verse 7 will pick up the story in Revelation 20, the second to last chapter of the Bible. It says there, it says, when the thousand years are ended. So there's a point in time in the future when Jesus comes back. He's going to rule on this earth. There's going to be a battle of Armageddon. Jesus is going to defeat Satan. Uh, he's going to overthrow the enemy. He's going to take over the earth, and we're going to rule with him here for a thousand years. Now, is that a, physical, a literal thousand years? Is that a metaphorical thousand years? We can get really caught up in arguing about that. I don't know is the answer, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because I'm just going to waste your time because I don't know. Uh, there, there is a thousand years, whether that's God's time or man's time, you can figure that out on your own. There's going to be a period where Jesus rules here on earth and we're going to rule with him. That much I know. And God calls it a thousand years. That much I know. Uh, then after that thousand year, the millennial reign has ended. Satan will be released from prison. So God's going to lock Satan up for a thousand years. We're going to be on earth with with bliss, with no more enemy, with no more harassment, no more temptation, no more discouragement, no, no more suicide, no more addiction to opioids, right? Like all the stuff that is broken in our world is going to be fixed because the enemy is going to be cast out and he's not going to be able to break stuff anymore. But at the end of the thousand years, Satan's going to be released from prison. It says, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, I won't even get into them today, just their nations. Uh, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. So even though in this thousand years there's going to be no more enemy to bring sin, there's still going to be people on earth who just don't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus. And so when the enemy comes back, he's going to rally those who have not given their heart to Jesus, and they're going to try one more time. He already failed once. At the beginning in heaven, as he's overthrown there, he's failed a second time at the cross. He fails at this point a third time at the battle of Armageddon when he's locked up. He's going for number four. His fourth full attack on Jesus to try to overthrow the throne. Verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, that's us, and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So in the final battle, there won't even be a battle. They, they won't even make it. Like if you've ever wondered, like, why doesn't God just destroy Satan? He's going to. He's just, he, he's not finished yet. Right? We'll do it. Might have to do a series. Uh, right? He hasn't done it yet. It's going to happen. Verse 10, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. And sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. So they already made it there. The Antichrist is already going to be in hell at this point. Satan's going to join him. And they will be tormented day and night forever. 
and ever. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened. It was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written, not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is hell? Hell is a place created for the punishment of Satan. Hell is a place that was created to punish Satan and his minions, his demonic forces, for their rebellion against God, for their destruction of mankind, for, for all that they've done ultimately in rejecting God. However, hell will not just be for Satan and his minions. Hell will also be a place where those who have rejected Jesus, who have said no to the opportunity to submit to his lordship, will be eternally separated from him. I forget which great theologian it was who, who first said this. It may have been C.S. Lewis. It may have been someone else. But, but I know that I've heard it taught, and I think that it's very true that, that ultimately a good God would never force those who don't want to be subject to his rule, to be subject to his rule. That if we've rejected him, if we said, no, I don't want you, it wouldn't be fair for him to bring them into a place where he's going to rule for eternity. It would be miserable for them. And so he has to let them go somewhere else. And the other option is with the enemy. I don't like talking about him. I have friends. I have family who have died, the best of my knowledge, without knowing Jesus. This isn't something I take any pleasure in. This isn't something I look forward to, pounding my fist on the podium and preaching hellfire and brimstone. By the way, I don't think this is anything that God takes any pleasure in either. God was so motivated by the suffering of eternity in hell that he sent his son to die, that we didn't have to go. He allowed his son to suffer the most horrific death imaginable because God is so serious about the suffering of hell. I do think it's something we need to understand and be aware of. Statistics on this are are kind of funny. Uh, there was a poll in 2014. These numbers may have changed a little bit since then, but it said that 85% of Americans identifying as Christians believe in heaven. I've got some real questions for those other 15%. Um, I understand if you're not a Christian uh, and you don't believe in heaven, but if you're a Christian and you don't believe in heaven, we got to have a talk. Um, so these are people who identify as Christians. That doesn't necessarily mean they are Christians. 70% of Americans identifying as Christians believe in hell. There's a gap. It's easier to believe in heaven than it is to believe in hell. By the way, that gap exists across virtually every demographic. Christian atheists, by the way, there are atheists who believe in heaven, which 
again, let's have a talk, right? Like, I, I, need, I need, to, need to have some answers. I've got some questions for you. 5% of atheists believe in heaven. 3% of atheists believe in hell. That every demographic you can look at, Muslim, Jew, every Christian demographic, every denomination, every breakdown, you will see more people believe in heaven than believe in hell. It's easier to believe in heaven than to believe in hell. It's more comfortable to believe in heaven than to believe in hell. But if we're going to be people who believe what the word of God has to say, then we don't get to choose one or the other. We have to be people who believe in both. So very quickly, I want to share with you two, two responses. A biblical understanding of hell will inspire and develop in us. If, if we understand that there truly is a hell, that it really is hot, that eternity really is long, if we understand that this actually exists, it's going to do some things within us. I think there's more than two responses, but there's at least two that we should have today. The first one is this. It will develop in us the deepest gratitude for our salvation. When you realize what you've been saved from, it inspires a deep, deep gratitude. Jesus says he, he encounters a, a prostitute who adores him, who, who takes her perfume and, and washes his feet with it. He says she loves much because she's been forgiven much. She's been saved from much. She had a revelation of what Jesus had spared her from. She knew the emptiness of her former life. She knew that it led nowhere. She knew that there was no fulfillment in it. And so she met Jesus and she worshiped him passionately and, and, and openly and publicly because she understood what she'd been saved from. I think some of us act like we were chilling in a kiddie pool, and Jesus busted out all Baywatch and tried to spare us from drowning out of 12 inches of water, right? We're like, thanks. When the reality is we had fallen off a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean in shark-infested waters, and apart from Jesus, we had no hope, zero hope. We were going to end in a horrific way. We were going to suffer tremendously, deservedly so, by the way. And so when we understand the reality of hell, it should birth in us a desire to glorify the one who saved us. It should give a commitment between us that you saved me from what I deserved should birth within us the deepest possible gratitude. Man, we should worship passionately. We should serve wholeheartedly. We should give generously. We should speak openly, right? Like this should affect the way we live. If we really believe we were saved from hell, and if we don't, why are we doing this? What's the point? Right? Either this is the most important thing that ever happened, or it's a waste of our time. And I'll tell you which side I've picked. This is it. This is all that matters. Jesus saved me from hell. I was strong. 
that's huge, should birth within us a massive gratitude that extends far beyond Sunday morning, extends far beyond our service to City Church. Man, it should extend throughout our lives. Amen? Amen. What else should a proper understanding, a biblical understanding of hell develop within us? Number two, to develop in us the deepest commitment to sharing Jesus with the lost. On numerous occasions, I've heard atheists say things like this, that I, I don't believe in hell. I think you guys are wrong. But if I did believe in hell, I'd tell everybody that I know they need a savior. Atheists. They can step back and look at this and say, man, if you really believe this, it should change everything. If you really believe this, you should tell everybody. If you really believe this, you should not shut up. If this is really what you believe, this should define who you are. And they're right. They're absolutely right. If we understand what hell is, we will leverage our lives to help as many as possible not end up there. Our neighbors, our friends, our family, our enemies. If we get a proper understanding of the misery and the suffering of hell, it will affect the way we live. Please don't mishear my message today. My message is not if you will get a proper understanding of hell, you're going to work really hard to earn your way into heaven. I believe in grace. I believe you cannot earn your way into heaven. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying go out there and get everything fixed because if you don't, you're going to burn in hell. That's not my message today. My message is that as a believer, Jesus has rescued you. His sacrifice has spared you from hell, and that should birth in you incredible gratitude and passionate commitment to tell others that Jesus has done the same thing for them, that he's paid the price for their sin, that he wants to rescue them into eternity with him as well. Amen?